Last time we were in Matthew, we had just finished John, uh, Jesus' parabolic discourse uh, as he's teaching through uh, all of these various parables that he had. The parable of the sower really serving as the key to all of them, teaching us that there are many different kinds of responses we can have to the gospel as it is proclaimed. And so between where we pick up here in our gospel narrative through chapter 16, we're going to see eight different reactions to the gospel and to the proclaiming of the kingdom of God. And fascinatingly enough, their reactions are proportional to the parable of the sower, where only one in four are, by proportion's sake, are positive responses, and the rest are negative. And as we jump right in today with two examples of hard hearts towards the gospel, one of them perhaps correlating very well with the parable regarding the thorns, where where the, the love of things of this world choked the gospel and prevented the person from becoming fruitful. Let's examine what I'm talking about when and begin with where Jesus finished his parables in verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Let's actually stop there for a second. You know, this reminds us that Jesus, while he was born in Bethlehem, he eventually had a a time in Egypt while fleeing from Herod the Great, but he was raised here in Nazareth where we find today's text. So at this synagogue, as he's teaching, he would have been surrounded by people who knew him his whole life. And contrary to some fiction writers, Jesus did not grow up obviously being the Messiah, doing all these little childish miracles, raising his friends' dead pets back to life or anything silly like that. No, we're actually told Jesus' first miracle was in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana. In Cana, sorry. But so this seemingly ordinary boy, as he was being raised up, you know, this town is his hometown. And no doubt as he's returning here, word had spread of these incredible things that Jesus has been doing. These word of these miracles and these great teachings he's doing. And they, I'm sure, had questions. And... This might explain their reaction as we jump back into uh, verse 54, where it said that uh, coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that the people were astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But hold that thought. We, we covered this already uh, at an earlier time, but I just want to touch on this briefly. Who was there with Jesus? His brothers and sisters. Interesting, right? 
Our Catholic friends do not like this verse, who claim that, Jesus, that Mary remained a virgin even after the birth of Jesus. But it's kind of hard to explain a passage like this when you, when you say you believe that. And they make up excuses. They say, oh, these were actually Jesus' cousins or children from a prior marriage to Joseph. But the words used here for brother and sister have never been used in biblical or secular writings to refer to anything else but your brothers and sisters, as we would understand that word. Doesn't mean cousin. Doesn't mean half-brother in, in the legal sense of the word. There's no way around what this text plainly says. Jesus had brothers and sisters. And we don't have problems with that as biblical Christians. But to those who do, so be it. You have to argue with the Bible, not me. And so we understand that the family, including Jesus, were known to the people of Nazareth. Can't talk today, Nazareth. (laughs) But why did they take offense at Jesus? Why were they offended by the things that he taught? Well, verse 57 gives us a bit of a hint where it says, But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. Gives us an idea. Because, you know, these people thought they knew Jesus. These people thought they understand it. This is Jesus. This is our guy. We grew up with this guy. We know Jesus. And because of that, their familiarity with him blinded them to the truth of who Jesus was. The fullness of who he was. Because it's hard to imagine good old ordinary Jesus leaving town and coming back as this international sensation. And where did he get all this knowledge? Seeing that he was the carpenter's son. He wasn't a trained rabbi in the sense that they would have understood him having formal training as a rabbi. And, you know, that's, that's the way that it is. You know, it's, uh, I heard it said, said this way, that some people have what's called powdered butt syndrome. In other words, once somebody has powdered your butt, they're not interested in your opinion on money or anything like that. Or any of the weightier things of life. And they just dismiss what you have to say. But that's not always the case. You know, I've met many people who, you know, had sons and daughters who, you know, as they got older, accepted their advice and were taken very good care of. When they humbly understood, okay, you know, my family actually does know what they're doing. They, they, I'll let them take care of me. I'll let them take care of my finances. They're, they're good there in that regard. But that's not always the case. And so it's not always the case that somebody's just over familiar with somebody. They're not going to listen to what you have to say. In fact, by Acts chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus' mother, brothers, and perhaps even his sisters the wording's a little bit vague, are part of the early church. And even his, um, two of his half-brothers, James and Jude, become leaders of the early church not long after that point in the book of Acts. So there's some truth to that. But here's what I fear, though, especially for this upcoming generation, because this upcoming generation thinks they know Jesus. They think they understand the church. They think they understand who God is, but they don't. 
And they make a lot of decisions off this faulty understanding of who God is. You know, I've spoken to so many people who are passionately rejecting who they think is Jesus, but I don't believe in that Jesus either. They're talking about this straw man argument of this God that I don't believe in either, or a dead religion that I'm not proclaiming, and hopefully you're not believing either. But such is the case. And what's sad is that rather than seeking answers to some of their legitimate questions, they're content to just ask the question and leave it there, cynically, oftentimes. And that's, that to me is sad, you know, that they're, they're simply content to reject Jesus before seeing if there are answers to their questions. See, I'm not afraid of questions. Questions are what led me to believe what I believe. Questions are what led me to know as much as I do know about the scriptures. Because having questions leads to answers. I'm not, that, therefore, I'm not afraid of questions. But these people just ask questions and that's enough. That's an, the fact that I have a question legitimizes me leaving the faith. I, I'm not a fan of that. I don't like that. Because there, there's a terrifying day coming where their willful ignorance of who God really is will be revealed. And they will be standing before God and realize the God they thought they understood is very different than the God who is. So this being said, as, as they are rejecting Jesus for their familiarity with him, what about this line about Jesus not being able to do miracles in, chapter, in verse 58 that says he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief? So was Jesus not able to do miracles here? Did their unbelief override or was greater than Jesus' ability to do miracles? I think intuitively we know that's not the case, but why? You see, here's the thing. Jesus, make no mistake, was capable of doing miracles. But never once in the Gospels do you see Jesus do miracles for the purpose of overwhelming someone's unbelief. Now, if somebody was convinced and in their heart they were rejecting Jesus already, no matter what he did, he wasn't just going to put on a magic show for them. That's not why Jesus did the things that he did. In fact, we get a key to understanding why he did this in Luke chapter 16, where we see the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where he said of the rich man's unbelieving brothers, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That gives us an idea. If, if God's word is not enough, there's no amount of miracles that will be if we don't actually believe God at his word. No, not, none of that is going to be enough. So, and as we addressed earlier, since in the, in, in the gospel, that miracles were a sign of Jesus being the Messiah. Jesus was doing these miracles to confirm that he had the credentials to those who had already believed. So if these people aren't going to believe anyway, there's no point in him doing them. So their unbelief that was rooted in their familiarity had costed them more than they could realize. So some, suggest, some reject the kingdom because... Familiarity was a stumbling block, yet others hear the message 
But their love for things of this world, their love for their sin or desires to be rich for all of these other things, as we'll see, can choke someone's faith. And we see that as we move into chapter 14. That says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been risen from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And just as a reminder, this is not the same Herod the Great that Jesus was fleeing from in his youth when he fled to Egypt. This is a different Herod. There were it is actually his son, Herod Antipas. Um, they were big on passing on the same name back, back then, or at least in this family. And he was not really a king as his father was. He was a tetrarch, where instead of the title king of the Jews as his father had, he was a lesser ruler of the Galilee region only. Now, while he ruled over the Jews, he himself was clearly much more of a pagan that, and we can see that by his guilt-ridden reaction towards what happened with John the Baptist, believing that he, Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. And the rest of this section is a flashback describing what happened, why he felt that way. And we see that as we pick back up in verse 3 that says, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. And we'll stop there for a second. But I, I did want to note that I'm largely going to skip over the, the large backstory of this family. There's a lot to be said of this crazy family drama within Herod's family. The full version is so bizarre. So twisted, so confusing, so perverted, so sick that, you know, I just don't have time to unpack all of that stuff here and it'd still be a worship service. But the problem with this, the problem with that backstory is that it's not shocking. It ought to be, but it's not. Because it's always been the case that politicians and government officials have been corrupt and perverted and messed up. That's always been the case. I mean, you read about the accounts in, from 2,000 years ago. When you turn on CNN, it's the same story. It's always been this way. An honest and pure politician has become something of an oxymoron. It's like jumbo shrimp or an elevated subway. It, by definition, doesn't make sense. But unfortunately... It's what happened and, and is recorded in history if you're interested. And likewise, it's not uncommon even to this day that the righteous who speak the truth are the ones who end up getting persecuted. As John was put in prison earlier by Herod for saying it was unlawful for him to have his sister-in-law as his wife. Look, in the eyes of God, their divorce and second marriage was illegitimate. It wasn't right. See, because remember, God's plan is and has always been one man and one woman for life. That's always been his plan. And people have tinkered with every portion of that simple formula. But even back then, there were 
and to this day, we forget that for life part of God's design. And apparently Herodias, Herod's now wife, didn't appreciate John's truth-telling and pressured Herod to, into putting him into prison. And he didn't, interestingly though, he didn't kill him as we read because he feared the people. So you start to get an idea of, you know, you know who was really in charge here. Herod was just kind of being pushed around by everybody, putting him into prison because of his wife, but he didn't kill them because he feared the people. It's like, oh, I really got to appease her, but I got to appease the people. Uh, what do I do? You, you don't get the picture of, some, of a real, real strong leader, do you? This is somebody who's just tossed around fearing the court of public opinion more than what's right or wrong, which really leads to some problems as we move forward. But... What's fascinating, though, is that Mark records that Herod actually enjoyed listening to John the Baptist preach. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, it seems like a contradiction compared to what I just told you, but from my perspective, that's actually quite easy to understand, unfortunately. Because every weekend, even going on right now, there are thousands upon thousands of people, thousands of people who are right now as we speak sitting under great pastors and great Bible teachers, hearing the word of God accurately and boldly proclaimed in their pulpits all over this country and all over the world on Sunday, frankly. And as they're doing it, such a few percentage of those people are actually following what the Bible says and what that pastor is exhorting his people to do. You ever wonder about that? Why, why so, seemingly so few people are actually following the message? And I believe that they are drawn to the gospel. That perhaps even know that it's true, but it's their love of their sin and their love for riches, their love for the things of this world that choke them like thorns to the legitimate plant, stopping it from being fruitful, stopping them from doing what they know in their heart is right. And maybe, maybe that's you. You know, I don't know your heart. I don't follow you guys home every week. But maybe that's you. Maybe you sit here every week, but this is the only hour of your week that you act like a Christian. But maybe that not, that's not it. Maybe it's more nuanced than that. Maybe you are legitimately, by the Spirit of God, moved by the messages on Sunday, but just not quite moved enough to, for it to change your Monday. And now let me warn you guys, that, that own, having that kind of an attitude where your faith doesn't lead to change in your life, that only makes you comparable to Herod. Because look, listening to John the Baptist didn't make him a Christian, and neither does listening to John Motley today. Because it doesn't matter what you feel when you hear the gospel proclaimed, it matters it matters whether or not you respond in faith. Matthew, Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. There's a huge difference there between him who says and him who does. Him who hears and him who applies. There's a big difference there. 
That, that's why James said, you know, that faith without works is dead. Not because you need to work to have faith, but a, but a genuine faith will have works accompanied to it. Your faith will lead to, a faith that is genuine will lead to change in your life. And for Herod, there was no change. He was just tickled by the illustrations he would use or maybe drawn to the truth he knew, he knew was true, but just didn't have the conviction and the courage to take that first step. So Herod, being this weak man that he is, led by, obviously, his passions, as we're about to notice, um, rather than conviction, used to enjoy John's teaching. Again, because of outside pressure, he ends up imprisoning her. But his further lack of conviction leads him to far worse, as we pick up in verse 5. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because he held them to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Which, as sickening as that is to read, you know, sadly also was not uncommon for a public official 2,000 years ago to have that kind of power and use it and abuse it in that way. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. What I just read is even more sickening when you remember that this was Herod's stepdaughter and niece because of the weird way this unfolded. This whole narrative is sick. This man of weak conviction, furthermore, was was so blinded by so many factors that prevented him from doing what was right. He was blinded by, in, in this type of a setting, on his birthday with all these people, you tell me alcohol wasn't involved. It's not written here, but you know that it is intuitively. So that this man, no doubt, is blinded by alcohol, blinded by lust, Again, that's sick considering who it's coming from. And the fear of man, the fear of others coming together in this powerful concoction that made him act so foolishly. And guys, what can I tell you except actions have consequences? Actions have consequences. And flirting with things that blind your judgment and being surrounded being blinded in your judgment by people who are looking to get something from you is a recipe for disaster. You have to be so careful not to find yourself in this type of a position. And Christians who desire to keep their integrity and their purity ought to avoid and mark this at all costs. Because had Herod kept his purity... He wouldn't have been influenced into into such a rash vow as 
his own stepdaughter led him into. But frankly, even if he had been just a man of integrity, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen in the first place. He would have, he would have stopped. He would have reneged on this vow. And here's why. This, this is what righteous people do. King David, for instance, in 1 Samuel 25, vowed disproportional vengeance on Nabal. Some of you guys might know this story. And when he was confronted by Abigail, the righteous woman, he relented of his ways when it was pointed out to him that he was making a mistake. Now look, a strong man of conviction will do what is right regardless of what other people are going to think of him. Regardless of what people might call him behind closed doors or whatever. He's going to still do the right thing as David did there. But a weak man, on the other hand, that type of a person will intentionally do something they know is wrong just to avoid what other people might say about him. You know this is true. Just to avoid being weak, they'll allow some, uh, 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 just to avoid being, appearing to appear weak, they'll do something wicked. And you know, guys, there's, there's a lot of talk these days about so-called toxic max- masculinity. Perhaps you've heard about that. And I'm sure that there's a, a measure of truth to it. I don't want to dismiss it whole cloth. But say what you will about that. I think the real problem in this nation is a lack of masculinity. In the true sense of the word. Because far more evil happens when weak, because weak men aren't stepping up and stopping the evil of other men who are driven by their passions. That evil is allowed to persist because strong men aren't rising up and stopping these weak men driven by their passions. Now what we need is more men who will see something going down. Step up and say, over your dead body you're going to hurt that person. Over my dead body, you're going, to allow, you're going to do that to that woman. That's true masculinity. And that's very much what's missing these days. Perhaps you guys have noticed, you know, some of you guys are old enough to remember a phrase that we used to be said all the time, not in my backyard. No, that's not going to be happening around my, around, in my neighborhood. Now what do we say? Not my problem. It's a huge difference. There is a worldview difference between those two statements. Those two statements reflect your entire philosophy of who you are, what your role in the world is, what you think of your duty to your fellow man. I don't like what that change seems to reflect on us. I don't think many of you do either. I know what society I'd rather live in. Because far often... Far too often, men are silent or worse when they see wicked things going down in their backyard. Or worse, compromise their convictions themselves like Herod did. So look, let's put this in perspective. Let's, put, let's get a higher perspective on these things because you can, you can find countless men throughout the scriptures who were persecuted and refused to compromise on their beliefs perhaps were even martyred for their beliefs, and they were honored in Scripture for it. And you will find plenty of men who were ready to be martyred for the faith, but were miraculously saved by God, like Daniel and his three friends. But you can't show me one incident where somebody compromised on these weightier matters, 
and were later honored in Scripture for it. But the greatest example of this kind of courage, the kind that I'm saying is missing today, is found in Jesus Christ himself. Where though he was tempted in every way that we are, yet remained without sin. He was offered all the things that stumble you and I. But unlike us, he he refused to compromise. He stayed pure. He chose to honor God each time. He stood up to injustices, like when the woman was caught in adultery. You remember what he said. He didn't say, just go ahead and stone her. He said, no, no. He who is without sin cast the first stone. Disarming the situation. Not allowing this injustice to take place. There's something to be said about that. And moreover, he himself regarded our own helpless estate. Because remember, instead of passively allowing us to accept our sentence in hell that we ought to have served ourselves, to take the punishment for our own sins that we would have rightfully deserved, he went to the cross, despising the shame, taking the penalty that I ought to have paid on the cross himself for me so that I could be forgiven and set free of my sins and yours. Guys, that is a beautiful display of what true masculinity looks like. I love that he did that, because that is someone who is not selfish, but selfless in the things that they, in, in, in their endeavors. It is So he was self-sacrificing, he was brave, and his actions were rooted in steadfast love for someone else. That's what true masculinity is, and we have forgotten that as a nation. Confusing it with all kinds of other things. So as we consider the, the bigger picture of these paragraphs that we've been looking at in Scripture, we see both Jesus and John the Baptist being rejected. And we need to, again, see the big picture and ask the question, why? Why was Jesus rejected in his hometown? Why was John the Baptist beheaded? Did it have to be this way? Was it their fault? Is it because the message is people familiar with you are going to hate you? (laughs) No, 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 that is not the message this morning. But it is something to think about. Had Jesus been telling jokes in the synagogue, they probably wouldn't have responded that way. They probably would have welcomed him home and loved him and laughed at him and agreed, oh, that's why he's so popular. He's such a funny, entertaining guy. We love this Jesus. But that wasn't his message. Or had John, when given an audience before Herod, used Inclusive language, accommodating his lifestyle choices. Herod would have loved him. And he would have. But make no mistake, he never would have repented of his sins, even if he had come in there with jokes and, you know, inclusive language and accommodated his sins. Because at some point, you still have to address that sin issue if you're going to be a faithful preacher. Guys, we forget this. We, 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 so many 
evangelical, Protestant, whatever churches spend so much energy trying to make the gospel, the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and his call to repentance so accessible, so easy, that we forget it actually is offensive. The gospel is offensive if it's spoken correctly because it, it is an affront to our own self-sufficiency. It is an affront to our own self-righteousness. It is offensive to say you are not good enough of your own works to enter heaven. There's a sting to that. And there ought to be. We need to be reminded we, none of us have earned heaven by our own merits. None of us could. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The psalmist wrote that there is none righteous, not even one. And at some point you have to say that. The gospel by its own nature tells me that I am not good enough to enter heaven. But I need a righteousness apart from the law, apart from my own works to enter and inherit eternal life. And it's only found by Jesus exchanging his robes for mine where he took my sins upon himself and gifted me with his righteousness. That's the only way I could ever be saved. And as offensive as it is, it's a key part of the message that we need to remember, that we are the need to recognize our sin and repent of it, to turn from that very thing that put him on the cross and to turn to him, trusting in him and him alone to save us. That is the gospel. And guys, look, that I'm going to be straight with you guys. There is Plenty of pressure for people like me to refrain from telling the full truth. To just tell jokes and appease the crowd, make everyone happy. Now, if, and frankly, if my goal was I want to build a crowd, that's what I would do. That's what many people do. Just be as entertaining as possible. Tell a bunch of jokes. Never mention sin. Never mention repentance. That's uncomfortable. Just give a bunch of motivational speeches about how to live your best life now. But that's the problem. The only way your best life is now is if you're going to hell later. That reveals the problem. And look, but, that is, but that's the problem because... Regretfully, you see that in so many churches today. So many large churches do that. Not all of them, but many of them. Focus on the entertainment rather than the truth. And look, if I try to put together an entertaining, palatable message, you know, we can get to two services here on a Sunday. Or three. But it wouldn't be a church. Because that's not how you build a church. No, the church is built, as the hymn says, on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It dares not trust the sweetest, most well-organized frame, but wholly trusts in Jesus' name. A biblical church stands on Christ, the solid rock. All that other stuff, as good as it might seem, is just sinking sand might be entertaining, it might be enjoyable, but it doesn't have eternal value to it. 
So guys, our job is not to befriend the world. We don't see Jesus or John the Baptist trying to do that in this passage. But to be like John the Baptist and calling it to repent. Because God, remember, God so loved that world that he gave his only son to save that world. So that all who believe in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. That is good news. Thanks be to God.